For more information about the songs, writers, and artists featured here, please visit rabbitroom.com. Rabbit Room theme music composed and performed by Ben Shive. Welcome to the Rabbit Room. I'm Andrew Peterson. Rabbit Room contributor Russ Ramsey is the pastor of Oak Hills Presbyterian Church in Kansas City. Not long after we first met, he sent me a series of his sermons titled The Passion According to John, and I was captivated. But not just by the excellent, passionate speaking or the obvious reverence he has for Scripture. Russ has a gift for telling stories. And though he'd humbly protest, I think he's something of an expert when it comes to the Easter story. For the next several episodes during this Lenten season, the Rabbit Room Podcast is honored to present to you a series of Russ's sermons at Oak Hills. He describes it as a sermon series focused on the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday, examining the validity of Jesus' claim that no one would take his life from him, but that he'd lay it down of his own accord and take it up again on the third day. This first sermon is titled, Hosanna. Have you ever found yourself following someone that you, and you and you you know you you're, you have a boss or a teacher or a mentor or a friend who's a natural leader and you and you and you're following their lead and then you discover part of the way through that there there's a little bit more to them than you thought and you start to wonder what have I gotten myself into am I really prepared to go the distance in following this person. I raise that question because my contention is that anyone who calls themselves a Christian is in this situation. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, you're in over your head. You're following one who is stronger than you know. He's more authoritative than you know. He's more fearless than you know. And there's nothing that he is afraid to lose. And he calls us then to follow him and to imitate him and to bear witness to him. And so for the next several weeks, six or seven studies worth, we're going to be spending our time focusing on this Jesus in a particular period of time in his life that is fascinating to me. And I want to explain kind of what we're going to be doing as a church here this autumn because it's part of a big setup for what we're going to be doing in the spring together as a church. Over the course of the next six months, we are going to examine carefully the last week of Jesus' life from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, from the triumphal entry to the resurrection and the road to Emmaus and all of that. And this fall, we're going to focus specifically on five days that Jesus spent in the area of Judea and in and around Jerusalem. And we're going to begin with, this morning, talking about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And then we're going to go through each day of the week and portions of different days until we get through to the upper room discourse, which John actually just spent three weeks preaching on Jesus' high priestly prayer, which he prayed there in that upper room. <clears throat> so we're going to follow him, Jesus, from this triumphal entry into Jerusalem to his last supper. And we're going to listen in on these five days that he spent in Judea to his last 
parables, the last things that he taught. We're going to watch the last miracles that he performed and see him engage in the final debates that he engaged with the religious leaders of the day. We're going to follow the real Jesus as presented in the Bible in real time as best as we can because we want to understand the central event of our faith and how it came to pass and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I can't tell you how exciting it is for me as a pastor to know that I get to spend a lot of time professionally over the next eight weeks or so studying the life of Jesus more and more. It's just such a great place to be as a student of the Word of God and also as a preacher and as a church to just spend time with Jesus of Nazareth as he prepared to accomplish what he had come to do. For those of us who grew up with Bible stories, when we come to stories that are familiar, there's a challenge that we face. And the challenge is to is to hear what the story is actually saying, to see the detail, to rescue truth from words that have become pretty familiar. Everybody knows Jesus died on the cross. If you know anything about Jesus of Nazareth, whether you believe in him or not, the odds are really, really good that you know that sort of the capstone experience of his life on earth was that he died on a cross. It's one of those facts that's just essential to the story. Like if you know anything about the Titanic, you know it sank. Or if you know anything about Abraham Lincoln, chances are you know that he was shot in the balcony at Ford's Theater. These are just things that you know. But this story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is drenched in detail that is remarkably significant when it comes to the interpretive insight that it gives us And it affects not just what we know about the story of his life, death, and resurrection, but what we know about Jesus himself. And so, how clear are you on the story of the last week of Jesus' life? What did he say? What did he do in those days? What's the basic story of his death and resurrection? Because if you're a Christian in this room, then your confession is that Jesus died in your place. And that he took your sins upon himself with that death. But why did he die? Was he a martyr? Was he just in the wrong place at the wrong time? Did Jesus Christ secure your salvation just barely? Or did he know what it was that he was doing? Prior to his arrest... Jesus made this statement. He said, no one, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Now, I contend that when Jesus said this, it wasn't simply a passing comment or a mere clarification, but I contend that this was a promise that Jesus was making which shook the foundations of creation and dictated the course of the rest of history. And so the aim of this series is to see the evidence of the truth of this declaration that Jesus made. No one took his life from him. We're going to see in the last week of his life how he intentionally laid that life down 
for us. Now my hope for this series really then comes down to three primary objectives for us as a church. And the first is that we would know Jesus Christ better through the careful study of his word. That we would just know him better. And second, that we'd understand that his death and resurrection was not something that was merely perpetrated against him, but was something that he meant to endure for the sake of the salvation of his people. And then third, that we would live free from fear to serve him with vigor in this life because we're confident in the salvation that he's accomplished. So that's the objectives of this time together as we prepare then for another series in the spring where we'll actually focus on that time from his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane through his rising again. When Jesus set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem, the Gospels tell us, near the end of his earthly ministry, he didn't steer away from this course at all. He knew that Jerusalem was going to be the site of his arrest and his trial and his eventual death. And in the days leading up to his arrest, he laid down his life by bringing the conflict to his potential and soon coming accusers. Jesus exacerbates the tension between himself and the religious leaders of the day at every turn. And as his crucifixion draws near, he puts himself directly in the path of those who want him dead. And so we're going to begin today with this episode that we often celebrate and, and preach on on the Sunday prior to Easter, Palm Sunday, and that is the episode of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And so I would invite all who are able to stand for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, all-sufficient word, John chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. John, uh, Luke, I'm sorry, Luke. Luke says, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them and as they were untying the colt its owners said to them why are you untying the colt and they said the Lord has need of it and they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt they set Jesus on it and as he rode along they spread their cloaks on the road as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. 
And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is God's word. You may be seated as we pray once more. Father, would you open your word for us? Would you use this time together this morning to reveal more of the truth of who you are, your strength, your resolve, the security that we have when our salvation is in you? And Lord, would you use this time together this morning to prepare us for the days that come before you are arrested and tried and sentenced and crucified and buried and then risen. Father, we thank you that we are not talking about an allegory, that we are not talking about a fable, but that we are talking about something that you did, not something that was done to you, but something you did of your own accord for the sake of the salvation of your people. Lord, would you impress upon us through this study what it means to be yours. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, before we expound on this text, we need to take a little bit of time to explore a little bit of background so that we can remember why people are so excited and upset at the same time when Jesus comes back to the area of Jerusalem. And as we pick up the story here, one, one thing that we see is, is pretty plain, and that's that Jesus' reputation is preceding him wherever he goes. He is now a known entity. He has fans. He has enemies. He has people who have heard things about miracles that he has performed. He'd been traveling around the regions of Judea and Galilee and some in Samaria now for, for nearly three years. And in many of these places, he had performed miracles, miraculous signs. Jesus was not the typical traveling teacher. There, was a lot, uh, there were a lot of traveling teachers, traveling rabbis who went around and they all had disciples. They had followers. But one of the things that was distinct about Jesus and his disciples was that for many of them, it wasn't just that they believed in Jesus' teaching. It's that they believed in him. They believed that he was somehow the answer to the problems that they were seeing in the world. Not just that he would explain how to solve the problems, but that he himself would actually do that. This text that we read opens, it says, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. He had just finished a time where he was teaching about 17 miles east of Jerusalem in the city of Jericho. And he was there because he was in a kind of political exile there. The last time that he was in Jerusalem, he'd worn out his welcome. The thing that he had done in that region which made him persona non grata was that he raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. And we shouldn't underestimate the impact of the resurrection of Lazarus. The Gospel of John makes a lot of this and explains that a lot of the fervor and a lot of the intensity around Jerusalem was because people knew what had happened to Lazarus. The response to Lazarus' resurrection was that people began to believe that Jesus was the one that God had sent who would deliver people from Roman oppression, that he would make Israel 
autonomous, that he would make Israel, that he would liberate Israel from Roman oppression, that Jesus would be their king, that he would be their king. The other gospel writers talk about this when they talk about the praise that he received as he rode into the city, the coming kingdom of David. They were talking about as he came in. That's what they were thinking. And these are the thoughts that you have of somebody who indisputably raises a man from the dead who had been in the grave for four days. When you have somebody like that on your ticket, you put a lot of faith in him. You expect a lot from him. It's like there's nothing he can't do. This wasn't the first miracle that he performed in Jerusalem, but it certainly was the one that had captured the attention of the people in that region, including the religious leaders of the day. And this put them in quite a quandary, which is why Jesus had to leave. Because the religious leaders in Jerusalem knew that if their Roman occupiers caught wind of the people of Israel regarding anyone other than Caesar as a king, well, that could spell the end of life in Jerusalem as they knew it. And so they began to make a plan to make sure that Jesus didn't upset this balance that they'd struck with Rome. And the appendix to that plan was whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. So Jesus was on notice that if he returned to the area of Jerusalem, it wouldn't be without consequence. So Luke, in chapter 9 earlier, makes this statement. He talks about when Jesus knew that the time was near for him to be taken up. He set his face to Jerusalem. To Jerusalem. Because he knew that Jerusalem was going to be the place where he would fulfill the reason for which he had come. Jerusalem was the city where his destiny lay. He knew that. Now so unflinching was his pursuit of his destiny that when Jesus returned to this area on the occasion of the major holiday Passover, the very first place that he went was a very unlikely place. He went to the home of his old friend Lazarus in Bethany. Now think about that. The Apostle John writes that six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived in Bethany and Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, gave a dinner celebrating his return. Now these are not the actions of a man who is trying to fly under the radar. In fact, as the word spread that Jesus was at Lazarus' house, crowds began to gather. Why? Because they wanted to see these two men together in the same place. The one who raises the dead and the one who was risen together in the same room. To his followers, going back to the home of Lazarus in Bethany, Jesus had come back to the site of one of the greatest displays of power that the world had ever witnessed. And to Jesus' opponents, Jesus had come back to the scene of the crime, Bethany. Many more who heard of this reunion began to believe in Jesus. And this created such a pressing problem that the chief priests, John writes, and this is fascinating to me, John 11, 10 and 11, the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death because on account of him, many Jews were turning away and believing 
in Jesus. There's this body count that is starting to rise in their minds for the sake of preserving what it is that they're just barely holding on to. All of this brings us to where we find Jesus in our text. He's been at Lazarus' home outside of Bethany and he sets out to enter the city of Jerusalem proper. He's not just lingering on the periphery in the suburbs, but he is now heading in. And he's going in to the city. And he sends a couple of disciples ahead of him to go and retrieve a colt, a foal, for him to ride upon. Now the Old Testament prophet Zechariah said to Israel this many years before, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on a donkey's foal. When Jesus retrieves a colt, not yet ridden for his entry into Jerusalem, he knows, he knows that this is going to call to mind Zechariah's prophecy. This is a kingly move. He knows that he is assuming the posture of a king. He knows the zeal of the people and how they are going to delight to receive him as a king. I don't know if you've ever thought of Jesus in this way. We're in the middle of a political cycle. Jesus is choreographing his entry into Jerusalem. Right now we're in the middle, right between the two major political conventions that each of the parties in the United States have where they name their candidate for the next president of the United States. And it is amazing to watch. It's just amazing to watch all that goes, all the choreography and all the attention to detail and the rhetoric and the spin and the way that you hear people in the news and with microphones in front of them using these exact same expressions over and over and over again as if they were all in a room together learning how to talk. It's amazing to watch powerful politicians and celebrities weigh in throughout the week and then the convention ends with the candidate himself accepting the nomination of his party. And when he gives that acceptance speech, he does his level best to persuade the nation that his administration is going to have an answer for every plaguing burden that the people bear. And if he can pull it off to persuade the people that he is the answer. And the crowds go wild. You have that picture in your head? Because I contend that this is not unlike the atmosphere surrounding Jesus when he rides into Jerusalem in this triumphal entry. And I want to explain this. The people have gathered in support of the one that they believe will solve the problems that they face. They're hoping to catch a glimpse of him, to be near him. They're elevating his authority and power. They're throwing their cloaks and palm branches down to create a road to dignify the arrival of their candidate who will bring the change that they so desperately want. 
And they're thinking about the problems. They're thinking about the Roman occupiers. They're thinking about Zechariah's call to rise up and behold their king coming riding on a colt. And they're abandoning caution for this one glorious moment of hope. And they cry out so that the whole world can hear whatever it costs. Blessed is the king! The king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessed is the king. Those are strong words in the ears of Caesar. And everyone knows they mean Jesus. So some of the Pharisees who are present, they go up to Jesus and they say, Hey, stop this. Make them shh. Because you know what could happen if this, if this gets back to somebody in the higher-ups. It's as if they're suggesting to Jesus when they say, rebuke your disciples, saying, come on, you, of all people, should know how this can upset the system that we've got and the system works. See, Israel had struck a compromise with Rome, and it is insidious when you look at it. The compromise was this. They, Israel, could continue their worship practices so long as they obeyed Roman rule, paid their taxes, and kept the peace. But any hint of insurgency was going to be dealt with, make no mistake, swiftly and without mercy. And this, for Rome, was just brilliant. Because think of it. Rome had persuaded Israel that their right to worship the God that their national identity was built upon was a privilege that was granted to them by Caesar. That is just politically brilliant. If you want to be an oppressor and you don't want to constantly have to be bullying people to keep them in line, and their national identity is built upon their worship of one God instead of many, let them. But make sure that they understand that you can take that privilege away in a heartbeat. And then they will worship with the knowledge that their privilege of worship is granted to them by Caesar. What this does is it takes the religious leaders and it divides their loyalty between the God of their Bible and the ruler of their occupying force. And so when the Pharisees ask Jesus to rebuke his followers, they're just assuming that he appreciates the delicacy of their position. Come on. And to this, Jesus says, if these people are silent, the very stones will cry out. In the Bible... Whenever voiceless parts of creation speak, the blood of Abel, Balaam's ass, it's because man doesn't understand what's in front of him. Man doesn't understand. And here we see a sobering truth. The world is blind. They're blind to what Jesus had come to do. They're full of half-truths. He was king. But Rome was not the empire he had come to conquer. 
He was the one Zechariah spoke of having salvation, but the peace that they clamored for was not the peace that he came to bring. Still, he accepts the praise of the people as he rides in in this choreographed entry because although mankind does not recognize the king he was meant to be, the rest of creation inanimate did. And if the people wouldn't praise him on this journey into the city of his coronation, the stones within her walls and upon her roads would testify that the one who rides on this colt is in fact the king. Righteous and having salvation. And so he doesn't silence his followers. As he approached Jerusalem from the east, he crests the rim of the Kidron Valley and there in full view for the first time before him stands the city of David glistening in the sun, glorious as it was built, as it was meant to do. And in his ears echo the calls for peace and he breaks down weeping and he says, oh, that you would have known what makes for peace but you didn't you don't these things are hidden from you the day is coming when not one stone is going to be left upon another in you because you didn't know the time of your visitation Jesus wept because what the people wanted from him and what they needed from him were so far from each other and yet this image is just rich of him sitting there on this colt on the eastern edge of the Kidron Valley looking over at Jerusalem. It's rich because it's this picture of heaven's glory in miniature. Everyone thinks this is the epic, this is the pinnacle, this is the great image of our king riding into the capital, but it really is just heaven's glory in miniature. See, he's a king, yes, but he's not wearing a crown yet. Two are in his immediate future, the crown of glory, but not before a crown of thorns, he'd soon ride on the clouds. But now he's on a, a young donkey. The streets of his kingdom would be paved with gold, but now it's just cloaks and palm branches. His capital city would be everlasting. It would be lit by the glory of his radiance. There would be no more need for sun or moon. The glory of God will give it light. But what lays before him is a city that is notoriously, historically, easy to conquer and almost impossible to hold. And it too is going to be ruined. So it's this picture of the glory of God in miniature. The king on the colt before the stone city. He knew the salvation that the people needed and he knew what it would cost and he knew the punishment that would bring them peace was about to be laid upon him and he knew that part of the engine that would drive this fulfillment of his reason for coming would be that the religious leaders would fear Rome more than God to the extent that they would put to death one of their own who might upset the privilege of worship that Caesar had granted them the people didn't know that the Messiah was in their midst. They didn't know that this was the time of their visitation. We, on the other hand, are not so blind. We have the rest 
of the story. And as we unpack it in these coming weeks, may we understand Jesus is the king who came in the name of the Lord and that the glory he inhabits is greater than any kingdom that ever was or ever shall be. May we come to know him as our savior and king, righteous and having salvation. No one took his life from him. But he did lay it down of his own accord. He had authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again, which he did. And now he lives seated at the right hand of God in glory. He knows what you truly need. And he has fully provided it. Do you believe this? I ask you this question because we're going to spend a lot of time in the next several weeks telling stories of Jesus. And I love these stories. They are rich. They're the kinds of stories that you tell and you think, why would I need to clutter this story up with adding on applications for the week when the story is glorious itself and it shows you Christ? But we will apply the Word of God. And the application that I want to leave us with this morning is to ask you this question. Are you playing around with the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life right now? Is it an add-on to the things that you're doing? Is it getting in the way? Is there any other authority or power that you're looking to to grant you when you worship, when you invest in relationships, when you care for other people in your life, when you give of yourself and your resources. Who rules your domain? Who rules the land that you inhabit? In these pictures that we see in this last week of Jesus' life, there's a bunch of people, his 12 disciples included, who are running around thinking that they know what's going on. And every so often, Jesus offers correctives. It's not that, it's this. But the one thing that he consistently does is he stays on course to accomplish something for us that I fear we treat very casually and that is restoring us into right relationship with the maker and lover of our souls we shouldn't just be casually glad for Christ we should be undone your king has come He's seated at the right hand of God. He wears a crown of glory. He rules forever. And if you are a Christian, he has called you a citizen of his kingdom and more than that, his beloved. And so I ask again, do you believe it? This has been episode 12 of the Rabbit Room Podcast, produced at the Warren outside of Nashville, Tennessee.